Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well... That and the fact that we're not allowed to use our title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Hunting Cove. Once a month, we invite someone we admire for a chat in front of a small audience in our deli, Honey and Spice. All of us in Haninko love the opportunity to cook food inspired by our guests for everyone to try, have a glass of wine and hear about the life made in food. This talk is with the wonderful Bea Wilson, one of the most interesting and thought-provoking food writers in Britain. Bea is interviewed by our own Elizabeth Hallett, and they talk about human food habits and the things that shape them like love, memory, culture, family and lots more. Bea started by reading a section from her book, First Bite. Memory. To anticipate pleasure in the next meal, something that can take up the greater part of the day, in my experience, is always a form of memory. And each mouthful recalls other mouthfuls you've eaten in the past. It stands to reason, therefore, that the flavour patterns in each of our brains are highly dependent on all the things we've tasted in the past, especially during childhood. Among North Africans settled in France, Fresh mint tea, often served in ornate teapots, is a way of life. Children grow up with that familiar herbal steam rising from the table as adults sit and talk. A particularly refreshing mint tea is served in the courtyard of the mosque in Paris, a tranquil place to retreat on sweltering days in the city. For French Algerians, mint tea is imprinted on the mind in a way that doesn't hold true for the non-African French population. In 2009, a group of subjects, half of them Algerian French and half of them European French, were asked to smell mint and say what they thought of it. All of them, French or Algerian, found it pleasant and all of them correctly identified it as mint. But when gold electrodes were attached to the scalp, the Algerians showed a significantly greater level of neural activity in response to the mint than the Europeans. Because of the mint tea they drank at home, the smell induced a different cortical pattern in the brain. Put simply, mint was a flavour that resonated more with the Algerians than the non-Algerians. This was an image their brains had already recognised many times before. If mint were a sound instead of a taste, you could say that the French heard the notes, 
but only the Algerians appreciated the music of it, because their memories of it were more expansive, meant actually took up more of their brain. When we are unable to obtain the flavours we remember from childhood, it can give rise to longings so intense it's hard to think of anything else. Some of the most poignant examples of this flavour yearning are the food obsessions of prisoners of war. When Primo Levi was imprisoned in a work camp near to Auschwitz called Buna, he remembered that fellow prisoners not only groaned in their sleep, but licked their lips. I quote, They are dreaming of eating. This is also a collective dream. You not only see the food, you feel it in your hands. Distinct and concrete, you are aware of its rich and striking smell. Among memoirs by POWs of the Second World War, a common theme is not just hunger, but the fevered memories it gave rise to of all the things they would eat again once they were free. Very seldom did they build those dreams about the grown-up food of sophisticated restaurants, but the food of childhood and of home, stodgy, filling and safe. One British prisoner of war remembered dreaming two nights in a row about omelettes and treacle pudding. He also remembered his bitter disappointment on waking up, since either was as obtainable as a slice of the moon. So I'm now skipping forward. There's a longer section of prisoners of war and something about the science of memory. But um, these food memory discussions also happen in a more secular and modern way. When you get three or more adults with nothing in common together, surprisingly often the conversation will turn to the junk foods we knew and loved as children. There is a communal comfort to be had in reciting the names out loud together like a liturgy. In Britain, the catechism of nostalgia includes such sweets as spangles, jelly tots, fries chocolate cream, space dust. These are common reference points that take us back to some joyous pre-pubertal age when life was free and easy. No home-cooked food, no matter how delicious, can match the power for bringing people together in misty-eyed recollection of industrially produced food. Convenience food has been blamed for the breakdown of communal eating, where families once shared a single dish from a single pot, now often they eat according to individual whim without sharing the experience. Multiple microwavable meals to cater for the taste of each family member or individually wrapped sandwiches and hamburgers. But the experience of junk food is still shared in the memory where its emotional force can be alarmingly strong. Candy bar nostalgia puts us all on the same page. The power of convenience foods to insinuate themselves into some of our most precious memories of family, of happiness, of childhood, should be of pressing concern for anyone who is serious about improving anyone's diet, including their own. From babyhood onwards, and maybe before, if your mother ate a bad diet during pregnancy, we are imprinted with memories of junk, like Algerians programmed with memories of mint tea. Our olfactory bulbs have gathered endless sense patterns of foods high in sugar, fat and salt. These flavour memories have become part of the fabric of our sense of self and are not easily discarded. What makes junk food so dangerous is not that it's unhealthy, although it is, is that it's entwined in our minds with so many other memories that are good and true and pure. Memory has always been an important part of how we learn to eat, but never before have so many of us been stamped with reinforcing food memories that mostly come not from a cuisine, but from a series of cartons and packets. 
When we hear someone suggesting that we stop eating our favourite brand of ice cream or potato crisps, crisps sorry, or sliced white bread, we feel a knee-jerk hostility. It's hard to let go of these foods and find a better way of eating without a sense of loss. The thing you are losing is your own childhood. Thank you. I think that that finishing on that note about your childhood is feels particularly relevant here at Honey and Co. Because um, one of the things that I think pervades the, the food of Honey and Co. is this sense of a home and childhood and the aunties and mums and the grandmas who all cooked and helped create the food that is served in the restaurant here and it's a really nice thing to think about and also just even the mention of the word spangles makes you realise how upset people get when brand names change and you just think no you know this is part of my childhood you can't change it it's a really big thing for people isn't it it's a huge thing even if you're someone that never eats butterscotch angel delight now just to know that it's still there on the shelf and that you could if you wanted to (laughs) and yet in a way these foods aren't deserving of that love I mean, it's misplaced, isn't it? But you can't deny the emotion because the emotion is completely real and authentic. And it was doubtless given to you by somebody who did love you very much. Um, And actually, it's just so uncanny you've chosen that because it was what my dad would give to us as kids when my mum was ill. Was so you know she was out of the way in bed unwell. Out would come the butterscotch Mm. angel delight, and we all knew we were being naughty including my dad he, he which knew, makes it even you know, more special yeah, yeah so but I look at a packet now mm. and I absolutely could not eat it I just want to guard mm. the memory I don't want to eat the mm. food um, but the, the, that whole sense of identity through food is mm. a really big part of how we think of ourselves um, you know how you define yourself what kind yeah. of food you like what kind of person that makes you. And that's something that you talk about in the book a lot. Well, so one of the big arguments in the book is that taste is not destiny, but it is identity. So we can absolutely change the way we eat. And what you said it was an emotional book for you to read. It was a very emotional book for me to write because I, it's much more personal than my other books. I talk about having had a very unhappy relationship with food, having been somewhere like a compulsive eater during my teenage years, now having happily reached a stage where I'm able to come to a lovely place like Honey and Co and eat with joy and not with guilt and to relish cooking and feeding other people but that that isn't something I take for granted so to come back to the question of identity part of why it's so hard to change the way we eat is that we say I'm a carnivore or I'm a chocoholic or and it's part of yourself you don't want to stop being a chocoholic at some level because it's it's quite a nice thing to be it makes you feel kind of warm and fuzzy well, I really liked the way you talked about your children and the kind of identity that they had of being subversive or a conformist, depending yeah. on the food choices I talked about, they make. I, My kids are very spaced out in age. I always do this when I talk about them because my dad's here in the audience, so he will understand that the oldest one is seven foot tall. <laughs> so I always go, I have... Tom, and then I have a girl in the middle, and then I have Leo. Then actually, Leo's probably up here. But the two boys are the ones I think of as sort of defining their tastes against each other in this quite rivalrous way. And the little one, actually, is not so little now, but the eight year old, 
loves chocolate, is a total chocoholic, and he's quite conformist in lots of ways. Like, if you got them both to read a Spider-Man comic, Leo would be like, I totally want to be Spider-Man. Oh, that'd be so cool. And Tom, who's my seven-foot-tall one, is very ironic, and he loves films. He'd be like, but obviously the Green Goblin is a more interesting character, and I don't like chocolate. <laughs> and I don't know how much of it... I've noticed, actually, you know, we just had Easter. When there's chocolate in the house, he will... Sometimes it goes. But... Saying I'm someone that doesn't like chocolate is something that you get a very strong reaction to. And it's a kind of something you project to the world. And there are so many ways in which we all do this. They're not often quite subtle ways that we don't realise. Um, and many of the people that I wrote about in the book, um, I hadn't realised the extent to which there's a huge hidden problem of so-called adult picky eaters. But we really should have a better word for them because there's something quite derogatory about saying picky eater. And really, these are people suffering with a terrible, often lifelong eating disorder, a kind of phobia of food. But often they have internalised to such an extent that they're someone that could never eat anything green and they could never try something new. And it's about safety, but it also is strongly about your sense of self. I think, interestingly, vegetables are a theme that you keep coming back to mm. in the book. And... Um, I explained to B that I was brought up in a vegetarian household and that vegetables were just part of our identity as a family and my dad was not a vegetarian um, which kind of led to its own interesting issues as he would slope in with a pork pie and, um, and you know if, if I said please can I have a piece of your pork pie my mum would never say no you can't it wasn't forbidden and so it was interesting that being allowed to explore this kind of made you come back in the end to making this choice about, no, I do want to be a vegetarian and I do want to define... My, I don't want to be the person that slopes in with some meat. And um, so just thinking back to my childhood, the, the question about vegetables has always struck me as, you know, why is it so complicated? And, and you've also re recently written an article about... The, the new challenge that we now have to eat ten a day, not mm. just five a day. Mm. Um, what is it with vegetables? Yeah, I mean, I, d I wonder what it is with vegetables. I think it's part of a bigger problem, which is that we put health in one box and pleasure in another box, and somehow the two don't join together. And one of the many, many things I love about the Honey and Coke, well, both books, but the first book where you introduce your vegetarian chapter by saying vegetables are your comfort food. And if we could all just, I mean, vegetables are one of my comfort foods now, and especially if it's a Honey & Co recipe, but it's, for many, many people, that is just like a contradiction in terms. And I wrote that 10-a-day article after having read all of these responses to the news that you know, we actually benefit. The research paper that the news story was based on pointed out, if you go from eating zero vegetables a day to two portions a day, there's huge benefits in that. So it's not like we should all be feeling we have to plough through ten portions every single day as a sort of sense of duty. But the response was very much that's what it's like. It's like, oh, five a day is bad enough. How are you going to manage ten? And my article was trying to say, well, if you love vegetables, it's not hard to eat ten a day, particularly if you're eating sort of delicious, inventive Indian or Middle Eastern vegetarian cuisine where you could just be having so many different textures on the table and not really notice that you've consumed five portions but for as long as we're saying that it's some kind of dreary target that we have to meet and you almost have to swallow the vegetables without noticing that they have any sort of taste 
And I think that was part of, I mean, it's a problem in lots of countries, but it was part of the British psyche, partly because we overboiled vegetables to such yes. an extent that maybe you did have to swallow them rather fast <laughs> and not notice what you were eating. Um, but it's clearly actually a problem in the States and lots of other places that healthiness doesn't have hedonic and pleasurable connotations for lots and lots of people. No, and actually, you know, thinking about the States in particular, I was really quite interested to read that Donald Trump, although he has five chefs in the White House, he loves Doritos chips and hamburgers. That's, that's his go-to food, and he doesn't really need a chef for any of that stuff at all. Mm. Um, so, but the, the very close association with... I think he's somewhere on the adult picky eating scale, actually. Yeah, I think... And I don't think he should be mocked for it. I think it's very... That sort of liberal elite thing of, oh, let's laugh at Trump because of his overcooked steak and ketchup. Actually, in the hinterlands of America, there are plenty of people like that, and they're not all bad people. They've just grown up knowing what they know. Um, and I think his form of cuisine probably plays quite well with them, and we should be careful at... Yeah, I, th I think it's more of a concern about what it says about people's food environment because sometimes it can be really, really hard to make the healthy choice because it's not the natural choice. It's not about, you know, the, the, the childhood mealtimes you remember as being convivial and warm and comforting. It can be, be something quite other for people. Yeah, hugely other. If you don't know something, you don't want to put it in your mouth. I mean, there are all these stages that a child goes through in learning how to eat. And actually tasting it is maybe the last one. One important thing is to see other people eating something and survive. <laughs> and preferably eating something and survive and actually enjoy it. I mean, that's that kind of modelling that goes on at a table. So a parent who says to a child, and I've done it myself, but a parent who says to a child, eat the broccoli in a slightly anxious way, that's a way less powerful thing than actually relishing the broccoli yourself. And maybe they'll eat it, maybe they won't trying to be relaxed. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So trying to avoid food being a battleground is, is clearly quite a big issue because um, we're surrounded by food. You know, I mean, there's so much abundance now that... How do you listen to the signal that says I'm hungry and know that you really are hungry? It's extremely difficult. I think hunger management is... I mean, I, I talk about eating as a series of skills that each of us can learn or not. And you don't just have to learn it as a child. The easiest time to learn it would be in childhood. But if you've grown up and you've got a kind of messed up relationship with food of one kind or another, the great thing is that human beings, we're omnivores, we're really malleable when it comes to food. It's never too late to relearn these things. One of the biggest skills that people haven't learned, and I certainly didn't have this at all, is a stop button. Um, and it, But it's possible to get better at sort of training yourself to think, I mean, the amount of food I would have once eaten, I would now feel uncomfortably full. And that's not about willpower. It's not about some idea of moral virtue. I hate all of these judgmental categories we attach to eating, eating well or eating badly. It's not about that at all. It's a kind of form of habit and preference that happens over many meals. And it's about, I mean, it, the odds are really stacked against us because something as simple as, I, actually, I think this isn't in the book because maybe I found this out for an article I was writing after the book, but dinner plates. Dinner plates in Britain since the 1950s have gained three or four centimetres in diameter. So even when we are cooking lovely, wholesome meals for ourselves at home, it's really easy just to serve yourself a really big portion without really thinking about it. And hunger is very visual. If we see something that looks like a generous portion, we feel fed by that before we've even taken a bite. So hunger, researching that chapter, there is a chapter called Hunger, was the biggest surprise almost of anything in the book, because I thought hunger is probably quite simple, that somehow it was almost like putting petrol in a car. And it turns out when you look into the science of hunger, there are all of these complex hormones and biomarkers. People are getting very interested in one called ghrelin, which seems to kind of make some people very hungry if they don't have it. There's another one called leptin. Um, there are various ways you can measure hunger in the brain, but it seems that the simplest way of telling if someone's hungry or not is just asking them. But you might be hungry for lots and lots of things. You might be hungry for company, you might be hungry for love, and you might seek all of those things in food, and all of us have done that. Well, most of us have done that at one time or another. Um, it's extremely hard to recognize when you're full, but one of the simplest and most brilliant experiments I came across in the writing of that chapter, there was a pediatrician called Susan Johnson who went into some kindergartens in America and she devised this really, really simple six-week program. And I wish people would do this with adults as well. I mean, I, I think it would work, which is that she gave the children these different dolls to play with, and they had stomachs. Um, and some of them were really, really full, and they were, the, they were fake kind of nylon stomachs filled up with salt. So some of them were this full, 
Some of them were just kind of moderately full and some of them were empty. And at snack time, she asked the children to put their hands on their own stomach and compare them with the dolls. And they did this every day for six weeks. And at the beginning of the six-week intervention, kids were like people are everywhere. Some of them could regulate accurately, some of them overate, some of them underate. By the end of the six weeks, they got much better at saying, actually, I think I've had enough now, I'm going to stop, which is an amazing useful skill but one that many extremely intelligent people haven't mastered and that's not a moral failing it's just the world is geared up to large portions um the world is teaching us all of these lessons about food now which aren't really very helpful well isn't nutrition as a science quite a modern science i think I mean, it's, it's true that diet is one of the hardest things you can possibly set out to measure. This is something I'm trying to work on for my next book. I mean, how do we actually know what anyone eats? Because you could, most of it's survey data, and we know that we all, well, we, not all of us, but we tend to maybe exaggerate a little bit or forget this snack here or that snack there. Um, so we can assume that the survey data is in itself slightly inaccurate. Um, and then measuring the effect of something in isolation is impossible because we don't learn to eat in isolation. We learn to eat in a family unit, as you've already said, and we learn to eat in the context of these huge cultural pressures that tell us cake is celebration and carrots are diet food. Um, so yeah, nutrition is a relatively new science. On the other hand, I think sometimes people keep saying, oh, we just don't know enough. And actually, coming back to vegetables, we do know there's lots and lots of epidemiological data that's looking at big populations showing you increase plant foods by a certain percentage and you can reduce mortality, reduce the risk of these non-communicable diseases like cancer. I mean, there's plenty that we do actually know about, I mean, the basic kind of Michael Pollan stuff, you increase variety in your diet, eat more plants, don't eat too much, leave some gaps between meals. Um, Oh, and don't, don't eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognise. Oh, which is, mm-hmm. is actually quite a, it's quite a useful benchmark in some ways, especially when I think the age of my granny, because she would have been born in the 19th century. So anything you didn't recognise up until the 1950s in Stockton-on-Tees, you kind of think <laughs> yeah. it was not an exotic diet, and it, and it yeah. certainly wasn't... A I half like that one, and I half don't. Is it, what's your issue with it? My issue with it is that, as a historian, we've had bad food for a very, very long time. We had hideously horrible and adulterated bread in Britain in the 1820s, um, that goes way back, it was your great-grandmother, wasn't it? But I mean, that goes, that's, I don't, I, how many generations does that go back? A lot. So I think your great-grandmother could have been living in Chicago in the meatpacking district where Upton Sinclair was describing the most terrible dyes and sort of fake things being added to meat. As a kind of just rule of thumb of, is it real food? I think, yeah, if you imagine you're going around a supermarket and you see something like a Lunchable... Um, made from kind of processed cheese and some weird square things that you're not quite sure even what they are. I get what he's saying. I'm being a bit pedantic. No, I think that's good to be pedantic, especially we know it's a complicated subject anyway. Mm. So, um, but I guess that one of the challenges for the modern family is, you know, I, I mean, I can remember noisy, convivial supper times and... We didn't eat when we got back from school. We had to wait. 
So you maybe got something mm. small to keep you going till seven o'clock and a kind of background of the archers, mm. um, which was a kind of theme tune to dinner time. Mm. And that was quite distinctive to other children in the neighbourhood. Um, so I, I do think that um, the, way, the way you learn to eat, which is something I really hadn't thought about that much, and, mm. and that, that's why this book felt so powerful to me, is you take certain things for granted and that you just assume that you know your life's not a million miles away from other mm. people's lives but um and actually you were receiving an amazing education and food from sitting down together eating your yeah. vegetarian food as a family sharing something but but that now it's quite a challenge i think for a lot of parents to actually share meal times with their children that you might have a, a children's tea time and mm. then the adult supper time with two completely different menus and it's really obvious to see why that would mm. would occur I think so it's pre- presumably it's, it's a much bigger challenge if you're not cooking your own food from scratch mm. and if you're not sharing it with sort of, and sort of modelling behaviour. Not sharing it is a huge thing and yet as you say we can totally understand why in some families it's just impossible to do it every day with the synchronicity of work hours and when people get back from school and homework and other things and then I I feel really torn on this one because I've been reading some data from the 1950s in Britain where in 1958 six out of ten British men came home for a hot cooked meal every day which on the one hand is wonderful and it was and then it was broken down this is really good um survey data with you they had they did have vegetables and they did have potatoes and it was very balanced but somebody had to cook that meal it meant that the women essentially had to be at home waiting to cook that hot meal and it's a completely different pattern of life i do think there's a bigger problem even allowing for the fact that maybe i mean i'm really lucky because i work freelance and we do sit together and eat as a family most days but often i think if i hadn't somehow managed to do that bit of prep earlier in the day and how would you fit it in with a really long job and a really long commute but even just to somehow manage it at weekends or to manage it as often as you can and i do partly feel that i mean you were told to wait for supper because it was that important that it was something that lives were organized around and now we often almost aren't treating food as important enough, even though we're obsessed with food, we watch Great British Bake Off, we kind of read food magazines, we idealise food, it's become a sort of extreme form of leisure, but that basic sense in which food gave rhythm to the day and it was something that anchored you down has gone. And in the chapter called Disorder, I talk about um, the way in which people can recover from eating disorders, including anorexia, and one of the methods that people use to recover from anorexia is called the Maudsley technique but it involves the whole family stopping and saying eating has to be the single most important thing in life from now on and obviously most of us are really lucky that we're not dealing with that but in a way I think to have some of that sense of actually dinner is so important that we're going to make some other things a bit less convenient in order to give this the billing that it deserves. Well, I think, I think that opportunity to actually engage with the food on your plate is clearly one of the big factors in kind of ascertaining you've eaten well. And, and so if you graze and read a computer or watch TV, you're much less conscious of the amount you've eaten as well as mm. actually what you've eaten, I think. And there's lots of evidence. We, I mean, it, so many benefits of family dinners. I mean, ranging from lower levels of child obesity to sort of better levels of social 
interaction, but just the joy of it, the fun of it. I mean, it's just, it's, even if you're squabbling over the table, there's nothing like a family meal time um, when it's going well. I mean, having said that, there are also sort of times when you want to escape from the family dinner table. Um, I, coming back to what you were saying about children and what you learnt at your family table, I've been, I mean, the last chapter of the book talks about these educational interventions, including in Finland, where they decided this is so important that actually we're going to create the whole preschool education system around food and sensory engagement with food, of the kind that you would think that you might just receive naturally in your family, but in Finland, just as in Britain, families are busy, they don't have knowledge necessarily, they don't have cooking skills. And it's this system called SAPER, where instead of giving people lectures on five a day, or you should eat this, or you should eat that, it's just encouraging children to interact with food. So they might just do classes on different kinds of bitter flavours, or taste five different kinds of berries. Um, I mean, that's a very Finnish example. We don't have so many lingonberries here, unfortunately, but you could do it with apples. Um, or getting them to taste lemon and talk about how it puckers up their mouth, or listening to food. Um, comparing the crunch of different apples or the way that rye crisp bread crackles. Um, and the single thing I'm most proud of, I think maybe in my life, is that um, some people read First Bite and it's now coming to the UK. It's going to be called Flavour School and it's launching in some schools as a pilot scheme this month. Um, so I'm keeping every finger crossed that that might make a difference and might just begin to give people back some of that as you say, sort of engagement with food, which is often just as simple as putting something in your mouth, coming back to the vegetables. If you have never put a green vegetable in your mouth, imagine how strange and weird and alien it would seem. As a teachers I was talking to when we were having the training days to launch this in the UK, there was a head teacher from Lincolnshire, and she said her school had really heavy social deprivation and they quite often when they give out the free fruit which every child in Britain gets for reception in year one and they give out oranges and children quite often they've never had an orange before so they just munch into it they don't realize that you have to peel it um, she was telling these hair raising stories another one of a child that kept getting stomach upsets and then they went to talk to the parents and the parents didn't realize you keep meat in the fridge so they'd been keeping meat um, just in a cupboard. Um, yeah, we're, we're very lucky, aren't we, those hmm. of us that enjoy cooking and kind of have that kind of bedrock of things that we take for granted. So this evening we are having new season garlic labne, which is a fresh cheese that we make. With crostini, then we have your choice of chicken, sweet garlic chicken, or our barbecued aubergine, which is served with a barbecue tahini, or both. And there is a jeweled rice salad. And Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 